0: Welcome to STEM4's podcast, Understanding Teen Minds, where we explore the world of teenage mental health, looking at everything from signs and symptoms to early intervention. STEM4 is a charity that promotes positive mental health in teenagers and those who support them. This includes their families and carers, education professionals, as well as school nurses and GPs. STEM4's mission is to foster the development of good mental health in teenagers by enhancing early understanding and awareness, and providing mental health education and resilience strategies. Join us as we open up the conversation on young people's mental health. Hello and welcome to STEM4 Mental Health Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. My name is Dr. Nahara Krause and I am the CEO and founder of STEM4, a teenage mental health charity based in London. I'm also a consultant clinical psychologist with many years of experience in a variety of mental health settings. I have a passion for improving the mental health of our young people. In today's episode, we are going to look at the defining features of some of the different types of eating disorders and to start to think a little bit about early identification. So first of all, some interesting background facts on eating disorders. Now, the data is a little bit old, but according to BEAT, the UK's National Eating Disorders Association, there are about 800,000 people in the UK with an eating disorder at any one time. About 11% of the population, and this is according to the National Institute of Clinical Excellence, present with with, with an eating disorder. In 2014, there was an approximate 7% increase in hospital admissions per year. Post the pandemic, this was reported as increasing sevenfold. So, if you take an average GP list, you may well have around 2,000 patients with some form of subclinical or clinical eating disorder at any one time. And of that, the composition will be that you will have around 2% of patients with anorexia nervosa, approximately about 18 patients with bulimia nervosa. 10% of your 2000 patients might well be female adolescents with harmful weight reduction techniques. Um, And there will also be a a range of older uh, females and some males who also present with disordered eating. Now, it's really important to try and focus on eating disorders because about 30% of the chronic population, so you are said to have a chronic eating disorder if you've had an eating disorder for 10 years and over, um, have high ill health issues. And it is perhaps very concerning to know that people with eating disorders have the highest mortality Of all mental ill health conditions. So they require huge amount of GP time in terms of both identifying and managing an ongoing eating disorder. So the distinguishing features between anorexia and bulimia nervosa is weight. So with anorexia nervosa, you will have individuals who present with a BMI of less than 16.5 in the UK. Bulimia nervosa might well present with average weight or high weight. However, between both of those categories, anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa, you will notice an overlap. So both anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa individuals will present with dietary restriction. And whilst binge eating is a diagnostic feature of bulimia nervosa, you can sometimes have a small group of people with anorexia nervosa who also binge eat. And as a result of this, people with anorexia nervosa fall into two subtypes. So you have the restrictive subtype or the bulimic subtype. Generally in clinical practice, the restrictive subtype require longer intervention and can present with more significant physical impact. There's also an overlap that's noted in purging behavior. So whilst again, this feature needs to be present for a diagnosis of bulimia nervosa, some individuals with anorexia nervosa also carry out a range of purging behavior and of those, excessive exercise can be noticed in both groups. Binge eating disorder, which is the third group of individuals who present with an eating disorder, is characterized usually by high weight, although some individuals again may present with normal weight. The difference between bulimia nervosa and binge eating disorder is that People with binge eating disorder do not purge, they do not carry out any particular behaviors to try and get rid of the food that they have eaten. All three groups of individuals with eating disorders present with similar cognitive issues. There are very high levels of guilt, there are very high levels of shame. Mood is often very significantly impacted in all three groups, um, and you will also have issues around control. And when you explore what those issues around control are, often what the individuals might be talking about is a control of emotions through either undereating or overeating. So once the physical stabilization has happened, the emotional and cognitive uh, experience of having an eating disorder absolutely needs to be addressed. The defining features of those three eating disorders are very strict. So if you look at the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Psychiatric Conditions, um, you will notice that there are very strict guidelines. And of course, there are a number of individuals who do have eating disorder features, but who may present as subclinical because they don't meet those stringent criteria. And if that's the case, they are then grouped into a fourth group of uh, called OSFED or other Categories of feeding and eating disorders. Within this OSFED group is a group who present with avoidance restrictive food intake disorder, abbreviated to ARFID. Individuals with ARFID present with very significant restriction and to a GP may often present as though they have anorexia nervosa. However, they will be eating a very limited food group, not generally because of the same issues around a distortion in weight or shape or as a result of control, but because there are either sensory or more obsessive issues around eating. Now, it might be helpful at this moment to step back and reflect on what might present as an eating disorder, but isn't one. And this group of individuals, again, very commonplace in primary practice, will present with what's called disordered eating, which is slightly different to an eating disorder. So the people in this group will be people who present with some form of selective eating. There might be individuals who present with food phobias, Um, Often a food phobia would have arisen because of a bad experience with food, so choking on some food, for example, or an excessive allergic reaction, perhaps, to food, uh, and of that then generalizing. You might have fussy or picky eaters due to, again, potentially sensory or other issues. And emetophobia. Emetophobia is a fear of being sick But as a result of that fear, a lot of people will present with not eating or eating restriction. uh, And that is seen as potentially a risk factor that could lead to an eating disorder. So again, would need to be um, diagnosed and then offered some treatment. So people with disordered eating respond extremely well as a first line approach to cognitive behavior therapy. People with eating disorders, on the other hand, often require a series of complex interventions. When it comes to assessment, GPs are very well placed to be able to carry these out. And there are a number of questions, five questions, five main questions that can help to guide support. So the first one is to think about the problems. So what are the problems that you need to identify? And some of those problems would be around the presenting problem, whether it's a mood one or whether it's an eating restriction or binge problem. But there may be a number of other physical problems that would also be important for you to identify. The second is to look at whether there's a single or dual diagnosis. So it would not be uncommon, for example, to have somebody who might, for example, have a spectrum disorder who might also then be presenting with an eating disorder. Or it might be that you have some individual with a personality disorder who might be presenting with quite severe bulimia nervosa. So it's important to look at that because the the presentation will then again skew the treatment The third question is to assess for severity and risk. And risk is very much determined by the physical factors that might be noticed. So there's a huge scope, again, to make sure that heart, uh, bloods, um, and indeed how the patient presents in terms of how quickly they might have developed their condition or the significance of weight loss, that would be very important to carry out. The fourth is to decide on whether the the individual might be managed in primary care um, and when to refer. Now, many GPs uh, have struggled, uh, as per our first series, on knowing where to refer. And if you are holding on to a low weight patient or a patient with some form of an eating disorder, whilst they wait for referral, then there may be some things that you could do to help manage the severity and the risk, which we can go on to talk about in the next series. The final question is to really think about who to best refer to and, of course, the likelihood of them being seen. So if you can try and think about those, the problem, the diagnosis, the severity risk, Uh, whether you manage in primary care or refer to and who to refer to, that would provide you with a really good initial assessment. In terms of risk factors, it's very useful to think about how rapid the weight loss might have been or indeed the weight gain, but also to think about the weight fluctuation. So weight plays one of the risk factors. The second risk factor is a failure to gain weight over a certain period of time. Electrolyte abnormalities would be the third risk factor. So it is very important to take electrolyte readings. Uh, And if an individual is throwing up a lot, or if they are taking uh, diuretics or uh, laxatives, then those electrolyte abnormalities need to be measured very regularly. Bradycardia. Of course, if an individual presents with amenorrhea or any sort of menstrual irregularities, then that again raises the risk, particularly of osteoporosis. If there's poor metabolic control in type 1 diabetes, that again is a risk factor. And if the individual is excessively using steroids coupled with exercise. So I'd just like to quote a little quote from Lask, uh, who was an eminent um, consultant psychiatrist in eating disorders, who said, a single consultation about, about eating behavior and weight concern is a strong predictor of the emergence of anorexia nervosa. So it's really, really important for that first consultation to provide the patient with an idea about feeling confident about uh, the next approach, but also in terms of diagnosis and screening. The other screening tool that is often used is the SCOF, S-C-O-F-F. You may or may not have come across it. The S stands for sick. The C stands for control. The O stands for one stone. And I will expand on these in a minute. And then the two Fs stand for fat and for food. So I will run through those in a minute in terms of what they are. But the SCOFF, so yes to two or more items on the SCOFF is 100% sensitive and 88% specific to an eating disorder. So it's absolutely a helpful early screening tool you can use. So let's go with the first letter of SCOFF. S, do you make yourself sick because you feel uncomfortably full? For the C, do you worry you have lost control over how much you eat? The O, have you recently lost more than one stone, which is equivalent to 6.35 kilograms, in a three-month period? First F, do you believe yourself to be fat when others say you're too thin? And the last F, would you say food dominates your life? So if you'd like to read up a bit more about the screening tool, you can refer to Morgan 1999 in the British Medical Journal. We will have these references at the end of the podcasts for you to access. Some of the other physical factors that you can do is to examine the patient. You can take their lying and standing heart rate and blood pressure, respiratory rate, their oral temperature, always a good sign of um, risk, height and weight, of course, to calculate the BMI or measurement on growth charts if you have a young person that you're dealing with. The sit up and squat stand test or the sus stand test is again a very easy practical test where you would get your patient to squat on the ground and then stand up without holding. You may want to check the body for fine downy hair or lanugo. You may wish to check their hand for calluses on the dorsum of their dominant hand if they're using the hand to throw up. You could check on dental enamel erosion, and you could check on salivary gland enlargement. And all of those would be physical factors specifically around um, throwing up. There's also a whole range of blood tests, and we will outline these for you. But the thing to keep in mind is that blood tests can often come up as normal. um, And that doesn't mean that the eating disorder isn't there. So it's useful to have repeated blood tests when you can. And the usual would be to make sure you do urine electrolytes, to do a full blood count, to do a liver function test, to test for calcium, magnesium, creatinine, to look at what might be happening from a muscle perspective, glucose and urine analysis. An ECG for underweight or hypokalemic patients is a good idea where you could look at the changes in QT intervals and a bone mineral density scan if the patient has had amenorrhea for over six months. So these are just some of the early screening tests. If you have a patient who water loads, before they come to see you. So water loading is when a a patient drinks a lot of water uh, in order for their weight to be higher on the scale, then this can prove to be extremely impactful in terms of electrolytes. But also it might give you a deceptive value when you weigh them. And it might be that if you are carrying out a urine analysis, you ask them for a sample before they get on the scale in order to get a little bit closer to a true weight for that patient. So, we've been sent a couple of questions. They're both around supporting parents to support young people. So the first one is about how parents might engage with a young person that they're concerned about, uh, whether there might be any tips on how they might best do this. So what I would say is that addressing somebody who has an eating disorder can be difficult because you might be very, very concerned as a parent. So what I would say is step one is to learn to manage your own emotions to be calm, consistent, and loving, and to do your best to try and avoid becoming emotional or angry. It's always helpful to prepare what parents are going to say and to really try and avoid blame or judgment and to try and focus on how they might be feeling. It's important to try and avoid talking about their parents, even if you're trying to say something nice. And sometimes when parents are really concerned, they can become anxiously critical. So they can say things like, oh, you're looking really, really thin at the moment. You're looking pale and unwell. So try and avoid those sorts of negative statements too. I always find that starting a sentence using the word I engages young people better. So saying something like, I'm worried because you don't seem to be happy, rather than starting the sentence beginning with you, such as, you're looking really miserable at the moment. Avoid discussing diets and weight problems, and try not to feel hurt if your young person doesn't open up straight away. And that's because eating disorders are secretive conditions. So if it is that they are secretive, that's because it's part of their illness rather than because of their relationship with you. The second question that I've been sent is about how GPs can provide some tips on how parents can manage mealtimes with young people. So, Mealtimes can be some of the most stressful times in terms of interactions. So managing parent emotions, family emotions and behaviors is going to be very, very important. So setting the scene and making it as neutral as possible, keeping in mind that mealtimes are scary times for a young person. If the young person is in treatment, it might be that you've been already given some advice on how to cope with it. But if not, then agree with GP and parent and the young person on what that meal plan is going to be like. And that will include, for example, having three regular meals and three agreed snacks. Agree with the family that no one will talk about portion sizes, calories or anything else about the meal. Part of this, of course, is also to try and avoid eating low-cannery or diet foods in front of a young person who you will be encouraging to eat um, balanced meals with. Try and keep things light-hearted and positive, even if you don't feel that way inside. If your young person offers to get involved in cooking the meal, this is usually a way of controlling it because they're fearful of what might go in the meal. Gently ask them to set the table or wash up instead. Try not to focus too much on the young person during mealtime. So try and enjoy your own meal. Make conversation. A family activity after the meal, such as playing a game or watching TV, can often help distract uh, distressed young people from wanting to purge or over exercise. A young person who has eaten and who has an eating disorder will also probably potentially say that they feel really uncomfortable, bloated, or distended. And if that is the case, gently reassure them and encourage them to focus on something else that will help them to learn how to manage discomfort and just help them to move on. Step four, have a range of resources to help you. So for young people, our Worth Warrior app which focuses on body image provides an evidence-based approach along the principles of cognitive behavior therapy for eating disorders for young people presenting with body image concerns and early stage disorders. It's funded by the NIHR and approved by the NHS ethics committee and we are currently recruiting young people to help us trial the app. For more information, please contact inquiries at stem4.org.uk. I hope you found today's episode helpful. If you did, then please do leave us a great review wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like more information, you can find a wealth of resources on our website at stem4.org.uk. And you can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at, at stem 4 Links to our website and our four free apps designed specifically for young people can be found in the podcast description. I hope you'll join me for our next episode. Until then, keep well, goodbye.